scripture reading will be taken from the book of Amos, Amos chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up your sons for, for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel? saith the Lord. But she gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Please be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Amos. We're going to be studying from Amos, the fourth chapter, in just a few moments. If you would be turning there, we're certainly grateful for the opportunity to be together once again this Lord's Day, to be able to worship and to sing praises and to pray to our great God in heaven. We're thankful for times to be able to see our brothers and sisters in Christ, to spend more time with one another. And so we are certainly hopeful that we will be able to be encouraged and built up in our faith as we study from the scriptures this afternoon. The book of Amos is a very interesting book. It's one that I enjoy studying. If you enjoy studying from the minor prophets, it is an enjoyable one uh, because I feel like it's a very simple and straightforward kind of book. It's pretty easy to grasp and to get a handle on. And sometimes when you study the prophets, it's not that easy and straightforward. And so Amos is uh, refreshing in that way. But there is certainly the importance of understanding just some of the historical context as we approach any study of the prophets that is helpful for understanding some things about the book itself. And the historical context surrounding the book of Amos, you have to understand Amos is a prophet of God who is prophesying to the northern ten tribes of Israel primarily. That's his main target audience. He has some things to say about other nations and about the people of Judah in the south, in the southern tribes. But his main, the the main audience that he has in mind would be the ten northern tribes of Israel. Amos is a farmer. He's a simple kind of man, you might say. That he is a sheep herder. He is not the highly educated uh, kind of prophet that you might expect to find in the big city. He's not a big city prophet. He is just a regular Joe who is called by God to be a prophet to Israel. His prophecies are direct and straightforward, as you might be able to tell as he speaks and as he writes. He is very clear in what he says. He doesn't stutter very much. He has a very clear message and he does not blink when it comes to saying some very hard things. He points out the sins of Israel. He condemned their religious practices and their idolatry that had grown to be so grotesque in the sight of God. He showed their injustice towards others, how they were cheating others in business and how they were unfair towards other people. And how they were just ungodly in so many different ways. That they had transgressed the law of Moses 
and had departed from it in so many different areas. Amos pointed out that the people had rejected God because they had rejected His Word. He was prophesying during the divided kingdom, during the reign of Jeroboam II and, and King Uzziah in the, in the southern kingdom. And so that places his time as a prophet of God somewhere about 760 to 750 B.C. Somewhere in the mid middle of the 8th century B.C. And so as he is a prophet of God, he has a very clear message. As I mentioned, he does not stutter very much. He has a very clear message that he is articulating. And that is a, a message of judgment, of doom and destruction. And that if Israel does not repent, if they not, do not return to God and abandon their wicked, evil, sinful ways, then that judgment is certain. And they will be lost. In chapter 4 of the book of Amos, in Amos chapter 4 and in verse 10, he says, I sent a plague. This is God speaking to the children of Israel through Amos. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you are like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now God is saying, I have given you all these chances. I sent a plague among you to offer some kind of warning to you. That it's time to wake up. It's time to get serious. That what God is saying is trying, He's trying to bring this against you so that you will not be utterly and completely destroyed. That you might get the hint that you need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. He says, I overthrew you and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. You were rescued. I preserved you. And yet you still did not return to me. And so Amos is saying there is going to be a time that you are going to meet God. And that was not the pleasant sort of invitation as you might expect it would be. Prepare to meet your God. Solidifies the coming judgment that was coming upon the people of Israel of certain doom and destruction because of their refusal to repent. Meeting God was not an appointment that they would want to keep at this, at this point in, that, in this juncture because it was not going to be a pleasant meeting. If they were going to be prepared to meet God, however, they were going to have to stop participating in sin. They were going to have to stop many of the things that they were doing in this time. You can you continue on into Amos the fifth chapter. In Amos chapter five, you can see Amos is imploring with the people of Israel in verse 14: seek good and not evil that you may live, 
And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Amos is recognizing that the people, they've got to quit. They've got to stop living how they currently are. Because they have distorted and perverted everything that God has wanted for His people. And so Amos is trying to get the people to abandon their ways. To seek good, not evil. To hate evil and to love what is good. And yet, we know how Israel would end. Ten northern tribes would be taken captive by Assyria and wiped out. It was a very sad ending for them. And so they did meet God. And it would not have been a very pleasant sort of meeting. But I think we can still learn some from the book of Amos. Because we all have an appointment where we will stand before God. Where we will meet the Lord. That is a sure and a certain meeting that will occur. And we might have to stop doing some things that are wrong, that are wicked. Just like the people of Israel needed to listen to the words of the prophet Amos. And I think we can find some lessons that they should have learned and avoided. And we can learn from those lessons and we can hopefully avoid some of the things as well. The first thing that they needed to stop doing was stop allowing the ungodly to influence them. That if we're going to be prepared to meet God, we have to stop allowing the ungodly to influence us. Amos prophesies in the first two chapters about all the nations around Israel. And that he goes through in Amos chapter 1 and in verse 1, the words of Amos who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, Joash king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem He utters His voice and the shepherds' pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So the people of Aram will go exiled to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 6, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. And he goes into all these different areas right around Israel. It's Syria or Damascus off to the north. You have Gaza, the Philistines, off to the 
west. You have Tyre and Edom, Ammon and Moab, all these people around Israel. And Israel is the hub. If you were to draw lines like a wheel or something, you have a line that is connected to Israel. And all these nations were influencing the children of Israel, the people of God. When it should have been the opposite, when it should have been the people of God who were influencing the other nations, they were so connected, they were so uh, had so much in common that they were right there. Their civilization was right there, connected to them. But these other nations were affecting Israel, and not in a good way. You continue to see this formula that's repeated for three transgressions. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. That they had fulfilled the totality of their wrongdoing and their injustice and their evil ways. Three for the three transgressions, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Punishment was coming for all of these nations. And then you come to chapter two of the book of Amos, and he begins with condemnation of Moab, and then in verse 4, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord and had not kept His statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. And then you come to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble and a man and his father resort to the same girl. In order to profane my holy name, On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Very sad picture for the people of God and their behavior. Judah has forsaken God's law. Israel has forsaken God's law. They've abandoned purpose. They've abandoned their sense of morality of what is right and what is un- unrighteous. He says in verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness forty years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? He goes on in verse 16 to talk about how even the bravest among their warriors would end up fleeing on the day that God brings His punishment. The people around Israel, they might have had an excuse. They didn't have the law of Moses. They didn't have the covenant. They didn't have the promises of God. 
But Israel had everything given to them. They were set up for success. And they turned against God. Because they allowed the other nations to influence them. They allowed the ungodly to affect them. Despite being God's covenant people and living the way that God wanted them to live, Israel had conformed their life, their behavior, even their religion to be like the nations surrounding them. Idolatrous worship in Israel came into being because they were influenced by the idolatrous and godless nations surrounding them. In Amos chapter 3, in Amos chapter 3 and in verse 1, notice what Amos says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which He brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. That them being the chosen people of God wasn't going to excuse them. It actually held them to a higher standard. It wasn't going to excuse them from punishment. It meant that they were going to be the first ones on the chopping block, so to speak. They were the first ones that God expected them to be better. You come to chapter 5 and you see their idolatry described. The end of chapter 5, where God says through Amos, I hate, in verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is that... I'm not going to listen to your sacrifices. I'm not going to listen to your worship. I'm not going to listen to your songs of praise because you have perverted justice. You don't treat your neighbor right. So you don't get to violate the law and look like you're serving me at the same time. He says in verse 25, Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for forty years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikketh, your king, and Kayan, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. They were going to be brought down and destroyed because of their wicked ways and the idolatry that they had introduced into Israel. But I think we need to be reminded that if we don't stop allowing the ungodly, wicked ways of this world to influence us, then we're not going to be prepared to meet God. Israel sadly did not learn that lesson in time. They did not stop that influence. And they could have. They could have gotten rid of the idolatry and they could have opposed anyone 
that said we need to be worshiping idols, but they didn't. They allowed that influence to remain and to destroy them. And that can have an effect upon us, even as God's people, even in the Lord's church. Whole churches can be compromised and consumed by the influence of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians the 15th chapter, sometimes we might like to remind our children of this uh, principle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And I say amen if you're teaching your children that message. That's a very important message to teach your children. But it's not one that is only for children. It's not just for your teenagers as they go into high school or something of that nature. This is something that they all, we all need to remember. Because it's interesting when you see that quotation or that verse there, it is in the middle of this whole context and where Paul is dealing with a defense of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection. And Paul, he says... Don't be deceived. And if you allow false teachers to come into the church that deny the resurrection, that ultimately denies the resurrection of Jesus. Bad company corrupts good morals. And Paul's point in that passage here is really that if you abandon any hope of a resurrection, then what's the purpose in living? Because he would go on to say that if we, you might as well just go on and uh, continue sinning. You might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And this is not something that is unique in this part of the book of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what might have been a very egregious thought to many of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 1, he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And they have become so emboldened by the evil culture that's around them that they have given their thoughts and, and behavior captive to Satan. Even to such a point that they are worse than Gentiles. They were worse than that. Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 15 he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He says, you guys live in a wicked, perverse 
crooked, corrupt world and generation. But that's not an excuse for you. He said that's a reason for you to get to work. You need to be a light to the world. You need to be a light to the world and you need to hold fast. Hold fast. Don't compromise. But hold fast. Remain loyal in your fight for what is good and for what is right. We have to ask ourselves, who has a greater influence over your life? Is it God and His Word or is it your friends? Is it the people at work that have a greater influence over you or do you have a greater influence over them? The people that we surround ourselves, our friends and our family, who is it that has a greater influence over us? Are they helping us get to heaven or not? And if they aren't, then maybe we need to ask ourselves why we are continuing to be around them. If we're going to be prepared to meet God, then we have got to stop allowing the ungodly to influence us. But secondly, we have to stop rejecting God's law. Israel and the people of Judah, they were rejecting the Word of God. In Amos chapter 2 and in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord. We learn in the opening chapter of the book of Psalms that the law of the Lord is good. That it is helpful for us. In Psalm 1, in verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That whenever we are keeping and walking by the law of God, it's keeping us on the path of righteousness. It's keeping us away from the wickedness of the ungodly. It shows us the path of righteousness. It shows us what is good. And it's the blessed life. But the people of God, the children of Israel, they rejected God's Word. Can you imagine rejecting God's Word? Not wanting to have anything to do with it? Some people are like that. And God, He saw their disdain for His Word and His law. And so, in Amos chapter 8, Amos chapter 8 and in verse 11, God said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea 
and from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? I think I see several of you using Bibles, the old school Bible with paper and ink on it. Some of you probably have a cell phone or a tablet that you're using your Bible. And you can take this anywhere, can't you? You can take this anywhere, nearly. You can access God's Word on that device all day long. Unless you're playing Bible trivia or something. I think that was a rule last night. But you, you can access God's Word and read it. You can think about it. I don't think we could even fathom what it would be like to have a famine of God's Word. Where you can't access it. Even if you want to find it, you can't. It's so scarce. And God is using that as, as judgment against Israel. You have rejected My law? Then fine, I won't give you My words. I won't allow you to know what I think. And you think about how accessible God's Word is to us. And there are still people who don't want to have anything to do with it. There are still people who don't want to come to study and to hear God's Word. And there's a very sobering truth that we need to recognize that if we reject God, and if we reject His Word, it is rejecting God. If we reject His Word, we are rejecting God's law. We are rejecting God's will and how He wants us to live. We are rejecting Him. And when we reject Him, God is willing to give up on us, if you will. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, there's a phrase that is repeated three times in this lengthy section in verses 18 through 32, where Paul is describing the wrath of God and how God's wrath appears upon the ungodly and on the unrighteous people who have turned away from him, who have turned to serve idols, and who do not give him the honor that is worthy of him. And so Paul writes in verse 24 Therefore, God gave them over in their lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over. He allowed them to make their decision and let them go wherever that would lead. God gave up on them, if you will. And God, some translations might even say God gave them up. Verse 26, 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The consequences of sin He allowed for them to hit into hit rock bottom. In verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are, are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, and he continues on with this list of things that are just grotesque and immoral in the sight of God. If we are so determined to reject God and His goodness and His grace and His law and His commands, He's going to let you go. And if you choose to follow the path of sin, He's not going to stop you. He's not going to stop you. But just know, there are consequences to that. There are consequences. Paul says in verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They're worthy of death. The whole section here begins with the wrath of God. God's wrath will be felt eventually if that's the path you so choose. However, in spite of all those sins that we might choose, God is still willing to forgive us. In the book of Romans, you continue just a couple of chapters later. And Paul would say in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. God is willing to pass over your sins. If you will believe in Jesus and be obedient to His will, He offers salvation to all if they will come back to Him and accept His Word. And the third thing that we need to learn from the book of Amos is that if we're going to be prepared to meet God, then we have got to stop trusting in life's comforts. People of Israel during Amos' day were living high on the hog. In Amos chapter 3 and in verse 15, it says, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. 
I don't know how many houses you might have, but if you have a, a winter house and a summer house, and you're doing pretty well, aren't you? If you have houses of ivory, then you're doing pretty well. In chapter 6, in Amos chapter 6 and in verse 1, Amos says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. He says in verse 3, Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. And they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will now go into exile as the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. People are living it up. They're doing very well for themselves financially. They live in great security. They have been put to ease because of all these riches and material blessings. There's a very sobering truth in the parable of the sower. As Jesus is explaining that parable. And He describes the different kinds of soil that the seed might find itself implanted. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 19, He is describing the seed that would fall among the thorns. And that those thorns would choke it out. But He says in verse 19, "...the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches..." and the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. He uses that phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. Riches are deceitful. They are very deceiving because they offer security, but it's only temporary, isn't it? It's only for as long as you have it or for as long as you live. And if you're not doing anything to think about eternal and spiritual things, and yet you have the whole world, and you lose your soul, then you've lost all that there is. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to Timothy in verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Earlier in the same chapter, he said in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We might be tempted to read all these warnings about having riches and the uncertainty of riches or the deceitfulness of riches, and we say, Oh, preacher, I don't have any money. You know, I don't have I'm not rich. I'm middle class, right? You might be tempted to say something like that. 
And I think Paul defines what it is to be rich here in this chapter. In verse 6, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have, been brought, we, have, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If we have food and clothing, or a roof over our head, it says you need to be content. And if you have anything more than that, guess what? You're rich. If you have more than that, I don't know about any of you, but we've got plenty of food in our cupboard. We've got plenty of food in the freezer. We have more than we need in terms of clothing. If you have more than what you need, just for the day, guess what? You're rich. I don't care what income tax bracket you're in. You're rich. And if we're rich, then we all have the same concern. We need to listen to these warnings. Because we need to be less concerned about profiting financially. And we need to be rich in good works, Paul says in verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He lists some things that are very good in verses 11 and 12 that we are to flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's going to be the key to eternal life. To a life of security. Not for just this present world, but for the one to come. We need to be rich in good deeds of faith, righteousness, and gentleness, and godliness, love, perseverance. We need to be engaging in the fight of spiritual warfare. We need to be engaged in the things that are right. And so, if you stop allowing the ungodly to influence you, if you stop rejecting God's law, and if you stop trusting in life's comforts, then you will be prepared to meet your God. But if we remain in these sorry conditions and allow the world to influence us, if we remain steadfast in refusing to follow God's Word, and if we continue to trust in the deceitfulness of riches, then we're not going to be ready to meet God. 
Israel would have been prepared to meet their God if they had stopped doing these things. Israel needed to be lights in the dark world around them. Israel needed to accept and obey God's commandments. Israel needed to trust in God's power and blessings, not take them for granted. If they would have done that, then they would have been prepared to meet the Lord. We know there is a day that is coming. A day where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will give an account for the things that we've done, whether good or evil. We have to ask ourselves, are we prepared to meet God? Are you busy living to influence others? Or are you allowing evil to influence you? Are you obeying God's commands? Or are you rejecting God's Word? Are you pursuing godliness, faith, love, and good works? Or are you trusting in riches? If you're allowing the latter of any of those things to have a greater influence over your life, then you are not prepared to meet your God. We all have an appointment that we're going to be keeping. An appointment to meet our God where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We need to be ready for that day. And if we are ready for that day, there is a great reward, a crown of life, that we will, where we will be able to dwell with our God and our Savior for eternity. But if we're not prepared, we will be cast into outer darkness. Don't let that be your fate. Learn from the lessons of Amos that he taught to the people of Israel. Learn from it so that you can be ready to stand before the judgment seat of God. If we can help you in some way to be ready to meet the Lord, this evening, if you need to become a Christian, water is prepared and we're ready to help you. Maybe it is that you have become a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully for Him. We want you to come back to the Lord. and We're here to help you and encourage you in whatever way we possibly can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we encourage you to come now as we stand and as we sing.